The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please open them up to the book of Ephesians? The book of Ephesians uh, is where we're going to be. We are starting our Ephesians sermon series today, and this will take us till Christmas. We're going to do Ephesians all fall. Um, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can open a phone or a tablet to Ephesians 1. There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can open those up to Ephesians 1. That's on page 976 in those hardback black Bibles. But I, I, this, this is a text that you're going to need to see with your, with your eyes. Ephesians chapter 1 is a big deal. Uh, As you're turning to Ephesians, I've told you about our yellow lab puppy. Uh, Her name is Mabel. Okay, I've told you about her. She actually, this weekend, turned one. So she, I don't know when you're not a puppy anymore, uh, but she's one now. Uh, And I just want you to know, we plan on having Mabel spayed. This is information that I felt like you should have, okay, as part of our church. We plan on having her spayed, first, because I love Bob Barker, all right? And I just trust this man implicitly, okay? Um, And second, while we love puppies, we don't love them that much, if you know what I'm saying, okay? Uh, Now, our vet told us that with Labradors, specifically, they want you to let the females go through their first heat before you have them spayed because the hormones help prevent against certain cancers. Uh, and, and, and so, so we're, we're going to do that. Uh, I have never had a dog go in heat before, so I Googled it, <laughs> which like any sane human being would do, okay? I Googled it, and I got way more information than I ever would have imagined I needed about dogs in heat. Uh, so the first thing we did was we stocked up on doggy diapers, which are a thing that I am thankful for, and they're awkward to buy, okay? But we stocked up on uh, doggy diapers, and Mabel went into heat last Thursday, okay? So my dog is in heat right now. Um, So we diapered her up, all right? And uh, listen, we are full in it right now, y'all. I took a picture of Mabel in her diaper. (laughs) Does she not look ashamed? (laughs) Ashamed of herself, I put it on her. I mean, she had no choice in this, but, but this is Mabel in a doggy diaper. Um, now, here's the thing. I told our seven-year-old daughter, Harper, that Mabel was in heat, and that's why she had to wear the silly-looking diapers. And Harper was confused. And she looks at me, and she says, Daddy, what's in heat? So I told her, uh, I I said, well, it's when a dog is ready to have puppies. And Harper got really excited, like instantaneously, very thrilled. But I said, wait, wait, we don't want her to have puppies. So after her heat, we're going to have her fixed. (laughs) And she looked at me confused again. Um, And then she proceeded to ask, Daddy... Have you ever been in heat? (laughs) And I honestly didn't know how to answer her. (laughs) Like, do I say no? Or do I answer always? I I don't know what to do in this moment. I say this, tell you the story, because sometimes I just don't know how to explain things, certain things, complex things, even sensitive things to my daughter. 
I don't know exactly how to do that. And, and today in our text, as we start Ephesians chapter one, we come to one of the most difficult things for Christians to explain, not just to seven-year-olds, all right, but to all of us. In Ephesians chapter one, we find the idea uh, that we would call predestination, predestination. Um, and actually the context, the larger topic that we'll be talking about is how God saves people. How does God save people? And if you've been around church or maybe you know some theology, you know that there's this debate on this between kind of what's known as the, th the free will argument and the predestination argument. So uh, uh, this debate is kind of, it's been around for a long time, okay? Even for well-seasoned, mature Christians, this can be one of those things that's difficult to explain. Um, did God predestine our lives and our salvation from eternity past? Or do we have free agency, free will to decide to follow Jesus? That's a complex issue. That's a complex topic. And the Apostle Paul jumps right into this at the beginning of Ephesians 1. Thank you, Paul. So, uh, so just a bit of forewarning, this is kind of a deeper topic that we're going to get into today, all right? And I did a lot of reading and listening to pastors and scholars and theologians this week to try and kind of prepare to bring this to you. And, and so I put this all together. I hope this is helpful. One verse that was helpful for me as I, before we even dig into Ephesians was Deuteronomy 29, 29. And this is, I'll put it up on the screen. This is what Deuteronomy says. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. So back in the Old Testament, God was mysterious and, 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 and tells us in his law that there are some things that are revealed. They're clear and we can grasp them and, and they're for us and for our children that we might obey them. And there are also some things that the scriptures tells us are secret things. They're hidden things. And the secret things, no matter how much we philosophize or theologize or systematize them, there's a level of mystery and hiddenness to them that will still remain. And so it's like this. Uh, this summer, I took that same daughter, Harper, my only daughter, to San Diego on our sabbatical, and she saw the beach for the first time in her life. Took her to the beach for the first time in her life. We got to the beach, and what happened, I watched her. Her eyes got really wide like really big eye, and she grabs my hand, okay? Uh, maybe not that high, like there. She grabs my hand, um, and, and we start wading into the ocean together. And the waves come, and we would jump over the wave, and we take big steps, and we're wading into the ocean. And as we got further and further in, the waves start getting bigger and bigger, and they start crashing against her chest, they start hitting her in the chest and she keeps grabbing my hand tighter and tighter as we're wading into this water. And by the time they are hitting her in the chest and like knocking her back, we're like in four feet of water at this point. And she says to me, I could hear her over the crash of the waves. She says, daddy, the ocean is so deep. Don't let go of me. And I said, I'm not gonna let go of you. First of all, there's way too many witnesses here. But uh, <laughs> no. I said, of course I won't let go of you, but let's go a little deeper. 
And so we tried to jump over the next wave and it's pushing us back. But I thought to myself, as I'm holding onto my daughter's hands, wading into the ocean at four feet deep, I thought, girl, we're only a few yards out. Like you can't even imagine how deep this thing goes. That's the kind of deep we're wading into today. That's the topic that we're digging into. And listen, when it starts to feel deep and you might feel the proverbial waves kind of hitting you in the chest and you might think you're at the depth, I just want to encourage you, you're only a few yards out. This is one of those mysterious things, the depths that we can't quite get our minds around. These are just, this is part of the secret stuff, okay? But I do want to encourage us, we can probably go a bit further. We can probably take a couple more steps into the water. So that's where we're going today. Let's get to work. I want to start by reading the whole passage for you. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. This is going to feel like a lot, um, and it is, but I'm going to read the whole thing, and I'm going to comment on it back through it. So here we go, Ephesians chapter 1. Follow along in your text. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love... He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That is one heck of a passage, my friends. Okay. Uh, All that English can be broken down into five sentences. That's how it's broken down in our text. But I want you to know that in the original Greek, verses 3 through 14 is one long run-on sentence. This is what Paul does. He'll do it eight times in this book. So just get ready, okay? Uh, It's a 202-word, poorly punctuated theological masterpiece, right? And the bane of every uh, English teacher's existence. That's what what you get in Ephesians uh, 1, 3 through 14. And we're asking here, how does God save? That's the question. How does God save people? And the best way I know how to kind of go through this and work through this is to do it theologically, 
So we're going to do this theologically, okay? Uh, What I want us to do is I want to give you a list of 10 nice and easy steps, 10 tidy steps, uh, and I will put them up on the screen. Uh, But this is what's known as the Ordo Salutis, which is a Latin phrase meaning order of salvation. This is the order of salvation, the Ordo Salutis. This is what they teach you in seminary, so you're getting it for free today, okay? Different theologians over the past 2,000 years have tried to systematize what actually happens when God saves people. And this is kind of the result of that. Ephesians 1 is one of the primary places where they derive this doctrine. Uh, Romans 8, which we had read over us, is another place where they kind of build out the order of salvation. Uh, And so this is deep stuff, but this is the best way that I think theologians have come up with to describe the salvation process, to describe how God saves. So we're going to walk through these 10. Here we go. Uh, Step one is election. Election. That is... God's choosing or choice of people to be saved. Now, this one we're going to look at in in extents together, in greater detail as we continue on, but that is the first step in the order of salvation. Step two, the gospel call. The gospel call. This is when God calls to an elect person as in uh, hearing the gospel. When they hear the gospel, when you hear the gospel, the message of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection uh, to the elect, this is the gospel call. God calls you. Step three, regeneration. Regeneration. This is the moment that we would say you are born again. Born again, okay? Uh, This is the moment, it's a moment where the message that you've heard of the gospel clicks and you are inwardly regenerated. Internally, you are changed. You are given a new heart, a heart of flesh, as it were. Step four, conversion. Conversion. This is like the outward move or response to the inward regeneration. Okay, so step four is when a person responds to the regeneration in their hearts with faith and repentance. Okay, so this might be when it feels like you make a decision for Christ. This might be when you would say, I I, I give my life to Jesus. This is that conversion moment. Step five, justification. Justification, we talk about this a lot as a church. This is a legal term, meaning at that moment, you are in right legal standing with God. It's that moment, okay, when you are declared not guilty of your sins, your sins are cast on Christ on the cross, and they are paid for in full. You are justified. Step six, Adoption. Adoption. We're not only cleared of our charges, we're not only declared not guilty, but we are then brought into the family of God as sons and as daughters. We are adopted into his family. Step seven, sanctification. Okay, sanctification. Now, pause. Steps three through six all happen in a moment. It's not like step three, four, five, six happen like Tuesday, Wednesday. They all happen at the same time. Just theologians are breaking them up to to try and quantify what actually is happening. But three through six happen in a moment. And that moment is the beginning of step seven. At that moment, step seven happens. Uh, It begins, sanctification begins, but then sanctification continues over the life of a believer, over your lifetime. 
It's this ongoing progressive work of growing in right conduct in life, of becoming more like Jesus. We talk about sanctification a lot as a church as well. Okay, step eight. Step eight is perseverance. This just means that if you are truly a Christian, you will remain a Christian. That one we don't have time for today, but that's a whole nother sermon or block of sermons, okay? Step nine is death, which feels weird as a part of your salvation, but it's the only way, okay? And we're all headed there, and it is the process by which you move from this life to the next life. So death is a part of your salvation process. And then step 10 is glorification. Glorification, which we uh, covered when we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 15, specifically, but this is when you receive a resurrected body and you live in a glorified state with God for all of eternity. That's a lot of theology right there. The order of salvation. So just note, once again, steps two through six, okay, the gospel call all the way down to adoption, and then the beginning part of seven of, salva- of uh, sanctification. We would all, all of those are kind of crammed into what we would say is becoming a Christian, All of those things, hearing the call, responding, being regenerated, all these things, repentance, all that stuff, that all happens as part of becoming a Christian. Part seven and eight are what follows you becoming a Christian for the rest of your life. Okay, nine happens at the end of this life and 10 happens when Christ returns and all things are made new and a new resurrected body comes about. So, I don't have time to unpack all of these today, but we will unpack a few of these today because literally we could spend weeks just on those first 14 verses. And I'm not gonna do that because I'd like to finish this before Christmas, all right? So uh, I will look back at a few verses and talk about a few of these specifically, uh, and we'll dig into this together. So let's start with the most controversial of the steps, and that is step one, election. Election. So look again back at your text, Ephesians chapter one, look down to verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So that sets up this whole section that God the Father, okay, the first person of the Trinity, Uh, has blessed us in Christ, is what the text says. That's the second person of the Trinity. And it says, with every spiritual blessing. And all interpreters say that he's talking about every spiritual blessing is salvation. That's the, the, the blessing in the heavenly places is salvation. And just so you don't feel like they're leaving out the Holy Spirit, he shows up in verse 13. So this is the whole Godhead working for your salvation. Okay, um, so the whole tri- triune Godhead, the Trinity, is working out our salvation. And now here's how God does it. Verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's step one. Okay, that's the step one of salvation. Uh, and I will... It's election, it's predestination, but I want to say it this way. We are chosen. We are chosen. God chose us before the foundation 
of this world. It's commonly known as election or predestination, okay? Paul mentions this, the predestination word a couple of times, right? Verse five, in love, he predestined us. Okay, verse 11, he does it again, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Like all of these things, he, he uses these words, but he starts with God chose us. So this is so unbelievably important to understand in your Christian journey. God chose you first, He moved first. He went first. He chose first. Okay, you may have responded in your conversion, right? That's step four. You you may have responded. That's where we choose, but God chose you first. Now, in fact, uh, in these 12 verses that I read that run on sentence, there are 24 verbs, 24 action sequences in that passage. And listen, God does 20 of them. God does 20 out of the 24. Here's what he does. Verse three, God blesses. Verse four, he chooses. Verse five, he predestines and adopts. Six, he bestows his grace. Uh, Seven, he redeems and forgives. Eight, he lavishes. Nine, he makes known and he purposes. 10, he unites all things together in Christ. 11, he works. And in verse 13, he seals with the Holy Spirit. And then there are four that we do. There are four that we do. Here's the four that we do. We listen, we receive, we believe, and we hope. In salvation, we listen, we receive, we believe, and we hope. Tell me that's not beautiful. This text says that he chose you. He chose us. And it says before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. So here's what this means. He chose you before you ever attended church. He chose you before you ever prayed a prayer. He chose you before you ever read your Bible or you ever gave money or you ever served in a ministry before you did anything good to deserve it or hear me, anything bad to disqualify yourself from it. He chose you. God chose you. And this idea of predestination, it doesn't just show up in the New Testament. It's not like Paul's making this stuff up out of thin air. God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they are said to be chosen, elected by God. Okay, the Israelites are elected, and the Old Testament is filled with mysterious explanations as to why God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, why he didn't choose other nations of the world. So Deuteronomy 7, I'll put this up on the screen. Deuteronomy 7 says this, it was not, this is speaking to Israel, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. There's the word. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. That's God saying, I didn't choose Israel because they were great or they had such potential to be great. Actually, you follow their lineage in their history. It doesn't get very good in the Old Testament. No, God says, I chose you. I chose to love you. Why? Because I love you. I chose to love you because I love you. It's a beautiful redundancy we find 
in the passage. But that's how fatherly love works. God, our father, to us as his children. That's how fatherly love works. It doesn't need, nor can it even often give an explanation. Fatherly love just is. It just is. I love you because I love you. Uh, The only relationship where I can get a glimpse of this in my life is with my daughter. It really is. It's the only relationship. I'll put her up on the screen. That was my first picture with her, with little Harper. On the day that that Harper was born, I I immediately knew I loved her (laughs) before she did anything. I loved her. I didn't know her. Okay, I didn't know what she would do. I didn't know if she'd turn out good or bad. And it's still sometimes a coin flip, y'all. But I loved her. I loved her. And in fact, we got her home and what did she do for me? Nothing. Like absolutely nothing, all right? She was, was a huge drain on us. Almost entirely, all right? She made my wife go crazy, all right? She never let us sleep. She only made a mess, Right? She was entirely selfish, just so unbelievably. I mean, has, has anybody's kid ever gone, no, 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 just, just finish up what you're doing. I'll wait here. That's never happened in the history of the world, right? No, they're selfish. She did nothing. Listen, she, that little thing, did nothing to deserve my love. Nothing. But gosh darn it, I love her. Why? because I love her. This is the one relationship where I experience love for someone or something that has no explanation. I don't love her because she's lovely, though she is. I just love her. The doctrine of predestination says this. God chose you before time began because he loves you. Now, there are objections to this idea. There are. Some will say, well, doesn't God choosing me violate my free will? Doesn't God choosing me before the foundation of the world, doesn't that in some way violate my free will? And I would say that the Bible gives us an answer of no to that. Okay, the Bible says that God chooses us, but the Bible also says that God's choice is never against our will. Rather, it's always in concert with it. So sometimes the Bible will say things like we just read in Ephesians 1 where it says, I chose you before the foundation of the world. But then in other places, specifically in the book of Revelation, Jesus will say, whosoever will come can come. Whosoever will. And then John 6, 44, I'll put this up, says this, no one, this is Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So like our choice to come, whosoever will come may come. Our choice to come and the Father's drawing somehow mysteriously go hand in hand. So I would just synthesize it like this. Our problem is not that we want to choose God. Like we wanted to, but we couldn't because we're not elect. 
Our problem is actually that deep down, none of us would choose God. This is why the great preacher Charles Spurgeon says this. I have no questions that God chose me because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. Another objection. Well, if God chooses, then why didn't God choose everybody? Why doesn't God choose everybody? Now, this is part of this discussion where a certain amount of mystery has to be acknowledged, just has to be acknowledged. But I'll I'll say this. The scripture never presents a lack of God's choosing as the reason why someone didn't come. The scripture never presents somebody who wants to choose him as the reason that they didn't come. Like God didn't choose them and so they wanted to come, but they couldn't come. You follow me there on that reason? Not once. The the choice is always on us in the text. So here's a few, few passages. Okay, Matthew 23 says, this is Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. 2 Peter 3, the the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, the Greek word for anyone there means anyone. So that puts us all in that category, okay? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, those feel like verses that kind of counter the whole he chose you thing. Sure sounds like we chose him in those. I got to open the door. I got to go through the door. Like, what does this mean? Well, there's a level of mystery here, but here's what I think, the best way I understand theology to put this, okay? If you're a Christian, it's because God chose you. If you're not, it's because you've chosen to reject him. And the Lord is not willing that you should perish, but that you would come to repentance, but he will not force himself upon anyone. So to quote a pastor friend, I always say he's a friend. He's not a friend. I've emailed him. Pastor J.D. Greer says this, are you chosen? If you choose to repent and believe in Jesus, you're chosen. The choice is yours. I'll make your brain hurt a little bit, but I think that's about right. So, so that's my best attempt at explaining election. Okay, predestination, that we are chosen. But I want us to focus on another part of the order of salvation. Continue on a little bit in this text. So, so look at verse five, okay? Because there's more to this than just predestination. Verse five. Actually, we'll go two words before verse five. In love, he predestined us, okay, there's the word, for adoption as sons and daughters, I'll add, 
through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. So we are predestined, but then for what? We're predestined for adoption. For adoption. And that is step six on the order of salvation, adoption. So, so here we go. We are chosen. Point two, we are children. We're children. We are adopted by God as sons and daughters according to the purpose of his will. And I bring this up, and I talked about adoption a few weeks ago, I know, but I bring this up again because adoption is one step of salvation that we can functionally reject. We can often reject this because adoption feels almost too personal. So maybe you, you'll buy into God choosing you and election and all that stuff. Maybe you, you understand God, God calls to us through the gospel message. You understand being born again, having responding, responding in faith, having your sins paid for, justification, all that stuff. But listen, adoption feels almost at times too good to be true. It feels like the part of salvation that's, that's so personal and too good to be true that it just must be too good to be true. It'd be like going to court. You go to court, you walk into the courtroom, and you know you're guilty. You know you are guilty of the accused crime against you, but the judge in that courtroom says, I find you not guilty because my son paid for your crime. All right, that's justification. And now, he continues, I want you to move into my house. I want you to move in with me. I'll take care of you. I want to pay for all your stuff. Like, I want you to be my child now. It's like the judge saying that, who gave his son for your payment. It feels too good to be true. Now, we have a bunch of families here at Fathom who serve as foster parents and adoptive parents to children. And I just think this is a, one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel, y'all. I think adoption is one of the most beautiful pictures of how God saves us. Uh, and so just think about it, okay? In adoption, the kids don't choose the parents, right? The parent chooses the kid. It's not like, okay, in an adoption thing or whatever, it's not like eight parents walk into a room and there's like one kid in there and he's like, all right, y'all, line them up, right? Okay, parent number three, would you please make a circle, turn around and you're like, wait a second, is that a cell phone host holster on your hip? I'm embarrassed already. No, you're out. You're out. Okay, parents number six over here. Uh, are you guys Xbox or are you PlayStation? You, Sega? Well, I don't even know what that is. Nope, you're out. It's never like that. The child doesn't choose the parents. No, the parents always choose the child. And in adoption, the parents always pay the cost. Parents pay the cost, whatever the cost is. Financial cost, emotional cost. Let me tell you, it ain't cheap on either front, on the wallet or the heart. But there's no adoption where the kid moves in and then says, all right, what do I got to do to start paying this thing off? Like, do you want me to pay you right now? Because that would be bad. How about when I graduate high school? Can we do that? Can we set up some sort of installment plan as I got my first job? Can I pay you back then? No, it would never work like that. And then in adoption, the child takes on the family's name. The child becomes a part of the new family. The child actually begins to become like their adoptive parents. They start to take on the traits and become familiar within that family. So we become like our parents. 
whether they are adoptive or they are biological parents, we become like them. So listen, if you're younger in here, although all the youth are gone, but it doesn't really matter. Okay, you are becoming like your parents. You are becoming like your parents. I freak myself out all the time when I realize I'm becoming Tom Martin. I am, okay? I sound like him. I sometimes will listen to voicemails and be like, that's my dad, but it's not, it's me, okay? I sound like him. I'm looking like him. I even say some of the things that he said. I find myself all the time turning off, like walking around the, the house, turning off light switches. No one's in this room. No one's in this room, right? That, that's my dad. Just this week, my wife can attest to this. Just this week, we had the AC on and the door, the sliding glass door was open. And I said, well... I guess we're just cooling the whole neighborhood. And I shut that door. I was like, that's not me. That's Tom. (laughs) We become like our, our parents. We become like our fathers. This is where adoption collides with sanctification, my friends. They all work together. See, all of these 10 pieces of the order of salvation are woven into this passage. We're chosen. We're children. I want to do one more. I can't, I don't have time for all of them. I want to do one more. Uh, Will you look all the way down to verse 13 with me? Verse 13. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we are chosen, we are children, and we are called. We're called. God calls to us with the message of the gospel. And listen, for some of you, this might even be happening to you right now. Like it actually could be happening right now. Like you, you, you can be in church for a long time and never hear and respond to the call. Okay, you may have been churched before, you may have heard sermons before, but maybe somehow today, by the grace of God, maybe for the first time, some of these things are starting to make sense. Like, you may not understand all of it, all right? You're only like a, a few yards into the ocean at this point, but maybe you're like, I don't know, this, this feels different to me. He might be talking to me. Listen, if you're not a Christian, here's, here's the message to you. You can be chosen. You can become his child. You are hearing a call, a gospel call right now. Will you respond with belief? The choice is yours. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. So some people are here, even online today, maybe maybe listening to this whenever, okay? Some of you are here because he's drawing you here. He's, he's put in you a hunger, a desire to know God. And, and your choice is to say yes. You can choose to say yes. You can receive his offer of forgiveness. You can submit to him as Lord and he will save you. You will be chosen right now. I mean, remember the four things that we do in this passage. We listen, we receive, we believe, and we hope. And to friends in here who are Christians, Christian in here today, you were chosen. You're his child. And you're called. 
you got to believe this. You have to believe these things. You, you don't have to agree with all the theology I taught. That's fine. Frankly, you don't even have to understand how all this works. You know what's fascinating? In that order of salvation, almost all of the things up to step seven happened before I even knew what they were. It all happened, and then I learned about it after the fact. You don't have to understand how all this works. I've got multiple degrees in this stuff, okay? Expensive pieces of paper that I, well, they're in a chest, but they could be hanging on my wall, and I'm still feeling like I'm getting pounded in the chest with four feet of water. It feels like it's slapping in my chest, and sometimes I feel like I'm in the depths, and I'm not even close. But think back to what I talked about with Harper and her seeing the ocean. She grabs a hold of my hand, and we start wading out. And as we get deeper, she grips harder. As we get into the area where she is uncertain about, she holds tighter and tighter. And at the point where she feels like she's going under, she says, Daddy, don't let go. This is what I can assure you. He won't let you go either. Just like I would never let her go. He won't let you go. Take that first step. If you're already up to your knees, take another step. He's calling you into the depths. He loves you. Why? Because he loves you. So are you chosen? The choice is yours. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. What a magnificent passage. Lord, I would just love to tackle those 14 verses for week after week after week because there's so much to mine from them. But Lord, even in just a, a cursory overview, we see the gospel painted for us so beautifully that you chose us, that you picked us. Father, that you love us like a, like a dad loves a firstborn child. Why? Because you do. That ought to stir up in us such praise, such adoration, such worship, such reverence, such respect, such devotion that you chose us. And not only that you saved us from our mess, but you invited us into your home. You called us your own son, daughter. And Lord, that all happened as you called to us from the gospel. And so, Father, today, if there are those who don't believe, I pray that, that the seeds of belief would be there. Whatever step in the order that happens, we don't know how to systematize all this mystery, but we do ask, Lord, that, that people would bow the knee to you. And for those of us who are already in the family, may this assure us of how good you are to us, that the, every spiritual blessing has been given to us through Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this passage. We want to praise your name now. So as we turn to worship you, Holy Spirit, move in this place. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.